Welcome to the NBA Trades Podcast. I'm your host, Raphael, and today I have a special guest. It's former Rockets General Manager Steve Patterson. Now, Steve was the Rockets General Manager from 1989 to 1993. He got his start in the sports industry at childhood. Um, He was the son of Ray Patterson, who was president of the Milwaukee Bucks. So I talked to Steve about his run in Houston, working with his dad with the Rockets since he worked throughout the 80s uh, before he became general manager, and then his rise to GM, becoming the youngest general manager in the NBA, how he helped bring the All-Star game to Houston, how um, he installed a ticketing system for the Rockets um, when he was working in the marketing department in the 80s. We then went through the entire run uh, his entire run as general manager for the Rockets so that means acquiring Vernon Maxwell and Kenny Smith in trades drafting Robert Ory Sam Cassell trading for Mario Ellie and then also the Akeem Olajuwon situation where Akeem Olajuwon wanted out of Houston had contract disagreements and made it public and so we went in depth about sort of the trade offers that Steve got dealing with an unhappy superstar and and having to handle that whole situation. So we went from that all the way until the end when the team was bought by Les Alexander in 1993, and then Steve was let go soon after. So I hope you enjoy and check it out. So when you, st- when you started off, uh, your dad worked as an executive for the Milwaukee Bucks, so you were around sports. What was that like in your life growing up? Well, it was uh, interesting because I actually started when I was about 10 years old answering the phone for the Milwaukee Bucks before we had any furniture. And, uh, you know, the league was much smaller than the revenues were smaller, the offices were smaller, <clears throat> the media exposure was smaller. But, you know, it was fun as a kid being around the game. The Milwaukee Arena was a great old building, you know, really tight, small building. You could, uh, see it over 10,000. So fans were right on top of the game. And uh, the uh, teams and players were closer. You didn't have everybody flying on charters. You you traveled with the other teams often, traveled with the referees often. And uh, so it was a more close-knit group than, um, than it is today. And so the Bucks won a championship in 1971. So for you as a adolescent, as a young person, what was it like going through that experience of getting to see a team win a championship? And like you said, the camaraderie, everybody's so much more close-knit just because of the different atmosphere and the different time period. What was it like to sort of see a championship won and to see that dream realized for a bunch of people from executive to coach to players? Well, there was a lot less media presence, so they uh, actually won it on the road in in Baltimore, and so you didn't really have a chance to see it the same way you do today. Um, but it happened so fast, I think people got a little bit spoiled. Um, you know, winning 60-odd games, you know, in the third year and winning it um, was a tremendous accomplishment, but uh, you had great players, you know, Kareem and Oscar courses, you know, some of the all time greatest. Um, and there was a dominant fun team to watch. We had all five of the starters shoot over 50%, which is kind of amazing, but it really was a great testament to what a great point guard uh, Oscar Robertson was because he got the ball to people where they could score easily. Um, but it was exciting, but I would say it didn't have the same uh, media presence that it does today in a community. Yeah. Um, did you always know that you wanted to work in sports from working in, at such an early age and getting to see up close what what the whole business was like? No, it really wasn't a plan. You know, the league changed dramatically um, as you got into the early and mid eighties, um, the businesses changed. They became less mom and pop operations and more professionalized. Um, 
there was a greater need for people that uh, had legal training as the dollars got bigger, the contracts get more complicated and the salary cap came in. Uh, so those were all changes that uh, meant that a different set of skills was going to be required. So we put the first computer network in uh, a professional sports team. We, we built our own ticketing system. Um, I handled all the contracts, the salary cap permutations to do deals. And so, you know, it was, it was, it was beginning to change and, Guys like David Stern and Larry Fleischer helped, uh, you know, professionalize the league and, and uh, give it a structure that uh, they could grow in. And so, when you joined the Rockets, you had went to law school and 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 eventually ended up at the Rockets. What was it like working with your with your dad? You know, it was a lot of fun. We're, we're sort of different characters. Um, he tends to think of something's if he thinks of something that it's done, he actually has to go finish it, uh, do it. Uh, but he was a great mentor. Uh, we had a lot of fun working together. Uh, Charlie Town was, it was a great owner to work with. You know, he, he understood the marketplace, understood marketing. He had car dealerships. So he, you know, when the economic downturn hit Houston from the SNL crisis and in, in the mid eighties and, you know, he knew if his uh, dealership that he had in Galveston didn't sell any cars that month, it was going to be tough selling any tickets that month, too, because it was discretionary income. Oh, wow. So uh, for at that time, especially, like you said, you, you know, you worked in multiple fields uh, for the Rockets, you know, working with contracts, also working with the marketing side of things, like you said, uh, the the ticket system. Uh at that time, especially, the, like you said, that was the first time that a, that a team really had done that. What was that like? An easy thing to do, or or hard? Like, uh, what do you remember about having to install that system and just sort of working on that side of things? Well, you were. What we were trying to do is move from manual processes to computerized processes, and so, you know, for a lot of old school people, that was not going to be an easy transition. Um, but it allowed us to, uh, have the highest season ticket base in the league with one of the smaller staffs in the league. Um, because we, uh, had moved in a direction to, to automate so much of what we were doing. Um, it was exciting and fun to, to build something new like that. Um, it was a challenge at times and we certainly had fits and starts and, uh, some things that, took a while to get uh, worked through, but uh, it was an exciting time as, you know, people moved away from big mainframes and, and uh, uh, dumb terminals towards uh, having your own desktop, which was sort of new at the time, and yet Compaq, which was a manufacturer uh, in the Houston area at the time. Um, and so you had it was much, I suppose, the way people felt 20, 30 years ago in Silicon Valley, where you're sort of changing how the business operates, and that's a lot of fun. And also with the Rockets at that time, they probably had one of the more interesting runs in the 80s uh, from you know being an NBA finalist with Moses Malone to having to rebuild to then drafting Akeem Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson and then becoming an NBA finalist again. So you sort of get to see both sides of of the winning side, being a contender, being a competitive team, and also sort of being a team that is is struggling and trying to figure things out and trying to rebuild. Do you do, what's the difference like? I guess maybe the atmosphere around the organization uh, on both sides. Right. Well. Um... You had a team that made a run to the finals that was largely a, a 500 ball club that uh, you know, Moses carried to the finals. Um, and then the free agency rules were changing, and so he signed with Philadelphia. Basically, his contract was as large as what Charlie Thomas had just paid to buy the entire franchise. 
Um, and so the decision was made to rebuild. Um, you know, rebuilding is never fun. You know, it's one thing to say, we're, we're going to go through this and, and, and rebuild, but the, the uh, problems that come out of it, the personality conflicts, the veteran guys that aren't getting minutes and complain about it and whatnot, um, you know, are difficult for, for them in their career. It's difficult for the fans. Um, but it's a process generally that every team that ultimately is going to be successful has to go through. Um, but, you know, when you got Akeem and Ralph and John Lucas and guys like that, you know, it was an exciting, fun team that ran, um, put a lot of points on the board. Uh, you know, there's a lot of energy around the team and excitement because um, you could see what was coming. And, uh, and you know, barring sort of injuries and some of the issues with drugs that some of the guys had uh, around that time, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun to watch it move forward. Yeah. And you just made an interesting point, um, the the drug situation with with players and sort of dealing with that. It's sort of specific to that generation, the 80s and the NBA. Uh, how hard was it as an executive or somebody working with a franchise, just how difficult that situation, because it really didn't just affect the Rockets. I mean, the Phoenix Suns drug scandal. Um, there were a few other situations that happened, or just play, like specific individual players. What how what was it like dealing with it at that specific time well you know we have guys that run afoul of rules and, and get kicked out of the league for a couple of years you, you know you just don't have uh the assets to to replace uh, those guys immediately so it's going to have a negative impact on the team um it's going to have a negative impact on the brand of the franchise it's going to have a negative impact on uh, how the fans feel about the team um but at the same time you know i think it was something that had to happen because you couldn't have guys continuing to uh, get in trouble and get killed in car wrecks and you know potentially be leveraged uh by gamblers or others you know because of their uh, drug habits um you know, but it was it was shocking and it was difficult to deal with, and um, I think the league sort of struggled with implementation and fairness across all the teams and across all the players. And um, I think it's good that the league's come through it and cleaned it, itself up. But it was certainly something that when you had guys running a follow of it, you get sponsors that don't want to be associated with that, season ticket holders that don't want to be associated with that. So. Although it was difficult, I think it was something that the league had to go through and do for the long-term benefit of everybody. I guess you would call it like growing pains. Um, yeah, so in uh, 1989, uh, you were hired as a general manager of the Rockets. For you, you were the, you were the youngest GM uh, ever in history. I think you were, you were 31 at the time. Uh, how, how, how did you feel coming into, the, into that role and... And what what did you expect coming into that role? Well, I was excited. I'd been involved in a lot of everything that we had done prior to that date, um, whether it was negotiating player contracts, negotiating trades, um, negotiating coaching contracts. Um, you know, and I'd had a chance to, to work with Ray, my father, for a lot of years, and with Charlie Thomas, the owner, then for a number of years. You know, there are, there are some people that that uh, sort of criticized the move, um, but that's to be expected in in the business. Um, you can't really let that bother you. You just got to go about your job, um, doing the best you can do. Um, and we had some deals that worked, and you know, some probably didn't. But uh, we put together a team that got back to the finals and ultimately won it, uh, which is a, always a difficult building process. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, one thing I, I think about and uh, right now is Flip Saunders, Ryan Saunders, his son is the coach and 
you know, it's a really positive story. But for you, did you ever feel like maybe you had something extra to prove because people might feel like, oh, he just got the job because of nepotism because he's uh, Ray Patterson's son? Did you ever feel like pressure to live up to that expectation or or prove people wrong maybe who feel who felt that way? I didn't really worry about it as trying to prove people wrong. I, I got up every day and tried to do the best I could uh, for the franchise and the fans and the owner and the employees. And, uh, you know, you let the chips fall where they may. I didn't, uh, I wasn't going to work any harder. I mean, I was working as hard as you could. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I don't really sort of, uh, evaluate my performance by what some third party might say that really doesn't understand or know all the facts. And so when you took over, you made, like you said, uh, you made some big moves leading into their championship run in 1994 and 95, uh, the back-to-back run. Um, But first I wanted to talk about, you also helped uh, bring the the All-Star game to, to Houston in 1989. Uh, could you tell me what that experience was like and, and sort of the run up to that and just how you were able to get that situation worked out where the Summit could host uh, an All-Star game? Yeah, so um, we viewed it as something that would be beneficial to the franchise as a whole and, and beneficial to the community. It's a you know, provides great exposure for the city and, and uh, certainly fills up the hotel rooms and the restaurants and it's an economic benefit. And I, it was something that Ray wanted to do and, and Charlie wanted to do. And so, yeah, I led that effort and um, we put together a deal to play All-Star Saturday at the summit and then All-Star Sunday, the actual All-Star game in the Astrodome. Yeah, and uh, the building was under construction. We were changing over from the old building that was sort of more configured for baseball to to uh, add additional seats for the Oilers. So the big scoreboard in the outfield was was going away. The sort of historic Astrodome scoreboard. Um, but it was great to work with the folks at the county and uh, and at the Astros and and at the Astrodome and. It was it was kind of interesting to be there during the game and be down on the floor because the majority of the seating was was back quite a ways from the floor. So you know you could walk around the floor of, of the game and it was like watching guys uh, you know in the park or at the local gym because you could hear all the tennis shoe squeaks and you could hear the guys talk to each other and but generally there was silence outside of that around the court itself. But then when somebody would score or, you know, dunk or steal or something, you'd hear this roar from further away in the building and it would sort of, there'd be a little time lag before it, it got to you. So it was a, uh, it was a real different experience watching the game as compared to where you've got the <clears throat> fans right on top of the court, which is the way it is most of the time. But, you know, Houston's a great town for, for big events like that. The city did a great job putting it on, and you know that that game held the record for a couple of decades till uh, till Jerry Jones had an All Star game in the, in the Cowboys building in uh, in Dallas, and uh, so we were real proud of what happened uh, with the game. Um, that was in the old days, and the whole building was uh, hard tickets, so we actually had a flight in New York, and. Uh, pick up all the tickets and these great, put them in these great big duffel bags and carry them back onto the airplane and filled up all the uh, overhead bins in first class. It was before the days of restrictions on what you could bring on board and, uh, you know, had to do it in a relatively secretive manner because you're walking around with millions and millions and millions of dollars of, of tickets. <laughs> um, but we weren't going to let them out of our sight. <laughs> so, uh, Oh, wow. We got him back and, and, and sold it sold it out, you know, forty four thousand people. 
Wow, that's amazing. So how did that even come into your mind to the Astrodome part of it, uh, to have the All-Star game in, you know, something that's not necessarily, I guess you would say conventional at the time? I mean, especially since that's the first time. Like right. Yeah. Well, you know, from our standpoint, we were, we had, I don't know, 14,000 season ticket holders or something. And, you know, the league would need uh, seven or 8,000 seats. And what we didn't want to have happen is to displace, you know, half our season ticket holders from coming to the All-Star game. So the way to make it work was to do the Saturday in the summit. And, you know, if people wanted to see those events, that was that was probably big enough. We didn't need to uh, have 40,000 seats for, uh, for All-Star Saturday. But, you know, this way, everybody who wanted to have seats to go to the game could get seats and get good seats and, and if they, you know, wanted to get a few extras for their friends and family, they could do that. And so it really was a great celebration for all of the fans, all the season ticket holders, and, and the community as a whole. Yeah. Um, so going back to the 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 Rockets, like the team specifically, so you you made a couple of big trades early on in your time uh, within like the first year. Uh, you acquired Vernon Maxwell from the Spurs in Feb- on February 21st, 1990, um, for cash. And you also made a trade later on that year for Kenny Smith from Atlanta. Uh, it was a four-player trade with Roy Marble, Tim McCormick, and John Lucas also involved. Those two guys ended up becoming really impactful players, important players to the makeup of that team, especially later on. How did you think to acquire them, and what were you looking to to build around Akeem Olajuwon as sort of the centerpiece of that team? Well, we needed help in the backcourt. Um, you know, Vernon is one of the best all-around athletes I've ever seen or worked with. Um, a really tough guy. Um, we needed some toughness in the backcourt. Um, he and <clears throat> uh, the coach weren't getting along in San Antonio at the time. Bob Bass was the GM and you know so they were going through changes on their roster and Vernon was available and uh, um, they actually wanted to cut him and it was a way the cash was a way for us to basically get to the top of of the waiver wire and get him for very little um, it, Vernon did a great job for us for a lot of years and you know we wouldn't want a championship without him um, you know, he was, he was, he had a temper and, you know, he had to manage that and it wasn't always easy, but, uh, um, you know, we tried to help surround him with some of the veterans that could, um, help him deal with that. Um, but it's kind of a fine line between dealing with his temper and his emotional volatility and, and what that toughness brought you on the court. And, uh, you know, you can have one or two, one, maybe two, maybe two guys, but generally one guy like that, because you don't want a second guy for them to run around with. But uh, um, it worked for us with, with Vernon. And, you know, when we had to have somebody tough to guard Michael Jordan, he could do it. Um, Kenny Smith, we wanted some speed and some shooting. And, uh, you know, he could do that for us. Um, quality guy. Um, you know, good family, uh, came out of, you know, Dean Smith's program. So he knows basketball. Um, you know, that was, we were looking for somebody that could start in the backcourt and, uh, uh, play the point for us. And, uh, he was a good fit, uh, for the club we had. We wanted to run and play fast and, you know, he had a major presence down on the block with, Olajuwon and certainly Otis Thorpe uh, after I got him and uh, you know Kenny gave us somebody who could consistently shoot the three and and also play fast and get up and down the floor fast get a lot of speed so uh, and was a real quality person so it was a good it was a good fit for us and you also that year you signed another guard you signed Sleepy Floyd to a four-year contract 
Um, what did you see in Sleepy? Like he was a veteran. He's most famously known for that playoff eruption against the Lakers when he was with the Warriors. Uh, what were you looking to get out of him when you when you signed him? Well, again, you know, he, he could score, um, play in the backcourt. Um, you know, Sleepy could have huge games like that and then, and then uh, you know, not, not consistently produce um, all the time. Uh, but he had a good career, and, you know, we thought that uh, he could continue to play at the level that uh, – that he had for the couple of years before that, that didn't necessarily turn out to be the case. But uh, uh, at the time, uh, there weren't a lot of options for who, if you if you weren't going to sign him and extend him, um, there weren't a lot of options to replace him with. Yeah. Um, so that team, those first your first two years running the team, uh, they were forty one and forty one. Uh, lost the Lakers in the first round, three to one, and then. The next year, the team was 52-30, and 30, and uh, they were swept by the Lakers, uh, 3-0. Um, the Lakers were really good at that time. Obviously, the Magic, Johnson, uh, led Lakers. And, obvi- and in 91, the, the Game 3, where Otis Thorpe on the inbounds play uh, didn't call a timeout and a five-second uh, violation. Uh, do you remember that situation and just sort of running into the Lakers those two years and just how tough Magic and, you know, that combination with James Worthy, too, on that team, uh, how tough it was playing them? Oh, yeah, they were they were a great ball club. And, you know, if you're playing in the West at that time, in the 80s and early 90s, that's who you had to knock off. And, uh, um you know, the battles they had with the Celtics and Pistons and whatnot for, for years in the finals were, were great battles. But, you know, you got Kareem and Magic and Worthy and Byron Scott. You know, that's, that's pretty tough to go up against. Wilkes, you know, uh, that's a pretty tough crew to go up against every night. So, you know, when we got to the point that we knocked them off, it was it was a great accomplishment for the franchise. But yeah, you're going to go through some growing pains trying to get there. Yeah, so the team uh the next year 91-92 is 42 and 40 that year, but they're 26 and 26 when uh Don Chaney is fired and replaced by Rudy Tomjanovich. Uh the team ends up missing the playoffs, but do you remember making that the making that decision to fire Don Chaney and and hire Rudy and and how did you come to that uh decision at that time? Um, you know, the, the move to make the change really was one that, uh, was driven by the owner. Uh, he wanted to make that change. You know, Ray and I talked for weeks to him to try to talk him out of it. And, uh, uh, but Charlie had his mind made up and, uh, you know, I can remember him actually saying to me, you know, Steve, if, if you don't want to do this, then I don't need you around as general manager anymore. So, you know, he was really set on, on wanting to make a change. Um, you know, so I met with Don and let him know we were going to make the change. And then I met with Rudy and Carol Dawson right after that. And San Antonio just made the change uh, just before roughly the same time. And, and Bob Bass, who was the GM, took over as coach. And so... Uh, I met with Rudy and, and Carol and let them know that uh, Don wasn't the coach anymore and uh, we were going to have to find somebody uh, to replace him. And I told him, you know, I'm not Bob Bass, so I'm not going to be coaching the club, so it's going to be one of the two of you guys. And Carol had had some health issues and some vision issues. and I think we all were concerned that although he was a great coach and a great basketball mind, um, his health probably wasn't uh, good enough for him to take the stress of being the head coach. And uh, so we looked at Rudy and said, you know, so that leaves you, Rudy. And, uh, you know, he didn't initially really want to do it. Um, he was very loyal to Don. And uh, and so I had an idea who the uh, outside people might be. Um, 
and you know they weren't real excited about working for any of these guys. Um, so we, we talked Rudy into doing it, um, and uh, you know it worked out in the long run, uh, you know very well. I was, you know, you look at sort of replacing Don playing as well as we had played. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think everybody was a little surprised, but that's what, that's what Charlie wanted. And, you know, he's the owner of the team. And that's his prerogative. And for, for Rudy as essentially, I mean, was he an interim coach like listed for the rest of that season as an interim? Yeah, initially. And then, yeah. and then, um, we did talk to some other folks, uh, and ultimately, um, settled on having Rudy come back as the permanent head coach. Oh, how did you come to that? I know he went 16 and 14 the rest of the way. Uh, how did you come to that decision to keep him on permanently? Well, I think everybody thought he did a good job and, uh, and, uh, was able to get, satisfactory results out of the players. He, you know, he'd been with the franchise forever. He worked yeah. his way up from being a scout all the way up to, you know, a top assistant and then, then as an interim head coach. Um, you know, we talked to uh, a number of other folks, uh, you know, including Mike Fratello and some others at the time. And, uh, you know, after sitting down with uh, Charlie, and talking like we all felt best with moving forward with uh, with Rudy on the bench. And throughout the course of that season, another thing happened, which was late in the season, March around late March, uh, Kim Olajuwon, uh, you suspended him without pay uh, because he said he was physically unable to play <laughs> uh, because he was suffering from yeah. a hamstring injury. And uh, and you were saying he was physically able to do so. Doctors had cleared him to play. Um, and, you know, it led to a lot of back and forth in the media. And, uh, I mean, do you remember that situation? Just, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's something I think in a weird way is sort of forgotten in Akeem's career because of the championships and sort of that, pre, that era pre the, the success of the team and, and, um, uh, and the championships. But did, what was that like when he first did that? I know him rene- renegotiating his contract was also a like a big point of contention between the club and him throughout the, uh, the a lot of the early part of his tenure with the Rockets. Yeah, I mean, Akeem is an interesting character. He's a very competitive person, uh, both on the floor and off the floor. And um, off the floor, that meant whenever somebody else Another player in the league got uh, a new contract or signed a free agent contract or what have you. He always wanted to look at whatever individual piece of that contract might be better and never wanted to recognize that in negotiations, you you trade some things for other things, right? So, you know, he'd, he'd want a shorter contract for more money and then he'd want a longer contract for more, more money. And <laughs> it was... I mean, the guy wanted to renegotiate every six months, sometimes every six weeks. And, uh, you know, he just didn't have a concept of uh, honoring the piece of paper that he'd signed. Um, So he was difficult in that respect to deal with. Um, And so, you know, some of that got out publicly and a lot of it didn't. Um, Yeah, but ultimately we reached a point where Charlie wasn't going to renegotiate yet again. We'd just done it um, and given him everything he asked for and you know, totally had his commitment. Yeah, this is the last time. This is what I really want. You know, he said all the right things, but he didn't mean it. Um, and so literally, and he had been calling Charlie and calling me. Uh, I met with him and, um, and, uh, you know, he's told him we're not going to renegotiate it again. You know, this is nuts. We're, you know, we're, we're doing this every few months. Um, and it made it impossible to, or very difficult to try to build a team around him because, you know, you're operating within the constraints of the cap. Um, you had the older teams that had their guys signed before the cap 
came into effect. So Boston and LA, you know, so at that period in time, there was, you know, points in time where their payroll was like three times what, what ours was in Houston. And so you wonder why they had better players. Well, they got grandfathered in. Um, you could, you could go over the cap to sign your own players or keep your own players. Um, and they had older, better players. Um, so I met with Akeem and, and the day before that and told him we're not renegotiating yet again. And he, he literally said to me, you want me to be happy, don't you? <laughs> I said, you know, at this, at this juncture, Akeem, I don't care whether you're happy or not. You know, I mean, we give you everything you've asked for. We're not renegotiating again. So he walked out of the office and, and the next morning he came in and literally was jogging down the hallway to the, uh, <clears throat> to the locker room. I get a call from the trainer a couple of minutes later and I saw him running and he was late to practice. And he was, so he was, you know, jogging down the hall and he comes in, you know, and the trainer says, well, he says he's got a, a pulled groin. And I said, oh, yeah, well show me. And, you know, so we go in there and Akeem starts telling me he's got a pulled hamstring <clears throat> and, and I have to go, well, which is it, Akeem? Is it a pulled groin or a pulled hamstring? And where is it? And, you know, he can't locate it. Well, you know, if you've ever pulled your groin or pulled a hamstring, you know exactly where it is. And you're not jogging down the hallway to, to practice. Um, so I went out and called, him, <coughs> called Charlie and came back, talked to him. And when I came back, he pointed to a different place at his leg than, than, than he had, you know, 15 minutes before. So, you know, if you're going to get your story down and fake an injury, you ought to at least know what you're faking um, and be consistent about it. And so, you know, it was obvious that he was pulling the, you know, pulling our chain. And uh, so, yeah, we suspended him uh, without pay. And, uh, you know, I had to go through a whole battle with him. You know, ultimately, the next season when we flew over to Japan, he and Charlie got together and got a chance to talk because they were stuck on the plane together for, I don't know, eight or 10 hours and you know, finally got it worked out and we didn't have any more problems with the contracts with them. Yeah. Um, at that time there, it, when there's discord, uh, and it's public, the, the NBA is a circle of birds, uh, looking at prey down under on the ground. And, uh, you have all these teams from what I read, there were 26 rumored teams to have offered a, you know, a trade, like trying to trade for him. Uh, for you, what's it like when you have like a star player and the everyone is is sort of sees that as prey? Like, okay, how can we get this guy? And you get every kind of offer under the sun uh, for him. Uh, what's that process like? And sort of dealing with all these teams sort of contacting you and trying really hard to get Akeem. Well, that's what happens is they, they, they do circle like birds of prey. And so they're not trying very hard to get them. They're trying to steal them from you. So, you know, Jerry West calls up and offers in the last four guys at the end of the bench and, and you know, can't understand why you don't want to make that kind of a deal. Cause you know, some guy hasn't played for half the year, such a great player. He, you know, how could you not want to do this, Steve? Um, we did have a lot of uh, conversations with a lot of folks. Um, the Clippers probably had the most assets and, and, uh, and, uh, made the most sincere run. Um, uh, Akeem had said he wanted to go to LA. Um, uh, you know, so they, they tried, um, and, uh, but ultimately we couldn't ever quite get to a deal. I think we got close, but. Um, we decided to stay and duke it out. And, you know, generally once you get to that point, it's awfully hard for the team that's trading, you know, a star player away to, to get back equal value. It, it rarely, rarely happens. And so, you know, in that environment, the, the players got a lot of leverage. Yeah. So, uh, another move you made. So after that season, uh, it's in June. Uh, you're in the draft, and you selected Robert Ory in the first in, with your first round pick, and uh, it led to a chorus of boos from fans in the summit uh, yeah. who were at the draft party uh, for the Rockets. Uh, at that time, a lot of people wanted Harold uh, thought Harold Miner was the next coming of Michael Jordan, so 
he was sort of yep, the, the baby se- Jordan. <laughs> yeah, he was the sexy, the sexy NBA pick. A lot of teams sort of passed on him, but at that time, a lot of people thought he should have gone higher. Even Robert Ory, from what I read in a story, said that he was shocked that he was picked over him, over Harold Miner. So, do you remember that that day making the pick and sort of the reaction from the fan base, but also what you saw in Robert Ory that maybe he was less uh, heralded than? you know, a player like Harold Miner and what you saw in him that maybe other people didn't see and what he can provide on the court. Right. Well, part of the general manager's job when you're going into the draft is to sort of prep the fan community for what you're going to do and and historically communicate through various media members and those media guys could look real smart because um, they would be picking the guy, uh, telling the fans who we were going to pick, and, and then we'd pick the guy, and he'd look smart. Um, the reality was there was a lot of competition for Robert Ory, and uh, uh, people behind us, uh, Miami, Detroit, I think, and a couple others were, we're trying to evaluate where they're going to have to move up to get in front of us to take Ori. And uh, so there comes a certain point in time where if you're trying to uh, get the player you want to get, you know, we didn't want to have to give up a bunch of assets to move up yet again in the draft. Um, You know, you have to, maybe not be as forthcoming as you otherwise might want to be right with the, with the other GMs and with the press. And so because we knew we had a couple of teams that wanted to move in front of us, you couldn't do the normal thing of saying, Oh, you know, these three guys are great and we're going to pick one of them. You know, we sort of had a bullshit and say, Oh yeah, baby Jordan, he's really great. Um, and maybe we're not so high on Robert Ory so that, the other clubs would stop trying to move up and get in front of us to take Ori when Ori is who we really wanted. You know, you look at Big Shot Bob's career, you know, half a dozen rings. The guy makes a great entry pass. He's a great defensive player for years. Uh, he could pl- he could guard all five positions. He had, you know, seven-foot wingspan. Um, you know, won a lot of ball games for teams for you know, a long, long time in the NBA. Uh, and smart, really smart player, quality human being. Um, he had Spreewell with him on that on that Alabama team, uh, and we just never were that high on on Harold Miner. He scored a lot of points, and you know that's sort of what most unsophisticated fans just look at. Um, but uh, you know we just weren't that high on. Him. We thought he was small, and uh, and. You know, he was a minor league version of what people thought of uh, Michael Jordan. And, you know, in, in a very short time period, that proved that to be the case. Um, so, yeah, we went after Ori. Uh, the community and the media were not ready for that. Um, we had, throughout that time, big draft night parties. And, yeah, I had to step out on the stage and 10,000 people booing us. <laughs> so... It wasn't a lot of fun, but uh, it was the right thing to do to get the right guy for the franchise. And uh, so some of those picks like Sam Cassell and and Robert Ory really made a difference. And and the guy that really (coughs) did the most work for us uh, was a fellow named John Kilway, who uh, was scouting the the colleges for us. And, uh, you know, he, he did a great job and, uh, was a great uh, proponent of uh, of Ori's and and uh, you know without him we wouldn't have picked him and we probably wouldn't have picked Sam Cassell either. Yeah, but he deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah, so that team, so ninety two ninety three is really the start of the teams uh, starting to become a contender, um, like the fifty five wins that year. Uh, one of the top teams in the West. And what I always found interesting about that team was just sort of the inside-out style of of just how the Rockets played. Akeem 
being this key post-up player, Otis Thorpe also being a really good post-up player, and just playing three guys out so that they could kick it out in, in terms of just double teams. And so the Rockets were, uh, that year, the I think led the NBA in three-pointers made per 100 possessions were in the top two in three-pointers attempted per 100 possessions. So uh, the Rockets were a team that really embraced the three-pointer at a time when you know the three-point shot was still developing in terms of teams taking it with regularity uh was that always something that you wanted to see in the team or how did that philosophy of just being an inside inside out team that does take a lot of threes but also has you know two key players in the post who can make plays um was that always the philosophy that you had for the Rockets well you had to have it if you were going to play Elijah down on the blocks and Otis Thorpe down on the blocks because otherwise they just sag other teams would just sag their defenses in and make it harder and harder for those guys to operate. But <clears throat> part of the part of the discussion and, and Akeem's maturation was getting him to give the ball up. It was also incumbent upon the organization to surround him with guys that could, you know, make the threes when he did so that it was um inefficient uh offense. Um and when we got guys like Ori and Kenny Smith and Scotty Brooks and Cassell and Vernon, and you had guys that could shoot the threes and, and make them. And so, you know, that made Akeem much more willing to give up the ball um, to those guys. And ultimately, I think all great players go through this phase where they've got to recognize if, that if they really want to win, they got to give the ball up. Uh, they can't do it all 100% themselves. And so, you know, it kind of doesn't matter who you look at over time until those great players make that adjustment. Um, they don't win championships. And so once the team did that, you know, it became a very dangerous team. Um, and, you know, you had guys like, there's probably not a guy out there who's, who's better at making an entry pass than Robert Horry. And so, being able to have he and Olajuwon play together, and when the ball comes back out, you know you got a guy who's got a basically seven feet tall making a three pointer or getting the ball back into him. It was it was tough to play against for the other teams. Yeah, so the team uh, uh, made the playoffs the first round. They beat the Clippers in 1993, three to two in a really competitive series, and then went on to play the Supersonics in another equally good, or even, it's probably one of the better second-round playoff series of that uh, decade, that era. Uh, it, it went seven games. The Supersonics won at the end um, in a really tough and tight series. Just a lot of the games were competitive. Um, even though the team lost, you could see that this team was starting to figure out who they were, the identity of the team. Uh, for you, did, how did you feel seeing the team start to develop and grow and, like you said, Akeem becoming a much better like player in terms of a teammate, making plays for other guys on the team, uh, looking for that pass to, to find people? Uh, what did you see in that team by that time? Well, I thought that it was kind of interesting that the trip to uh, Japan to start the year, where we played two games against Seattle and Otis Thorpe got sick and so he missed one of those games and and we lost without him over there. Put us in a position where we didn't have home court in the playoffs when we played them. And um, with that being the case, you know, we won all the games in Houston by decent margins and we lost all the games in Seattle, you know, in overtime or double overtime. Um by very small margins. Um, so, and at that time, Seattle was a really good team, uh, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, I felt we were moving into the top echelon in, in the West and um, could play with anybody and certainly could play uh, if we had the home court with anybody. Um, you know, I, I did think we made great progress, but it was – also at the time when the ball club got sold and and uh, I didn't have a good feeling that after we lost that, that uh, things were going to stay the same with the new owner. Yeah, and and so uh, 
Les Alexander buys the team in July, late July, and uh, you were able to make a few moves. Actually, your last uh, you you drafted Sam Cassell that year in the draft, and you also your last move was trading a draft pick for Mario Elie. Um, I think it was a second round pick right. to Portland. Um, so it ended up like you added two of the two of the key pieces uh, added to that team that ended up winning a championship. Uh, so when Les Alexander bought the team from Charlie Thomas, um, like you said, you 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 had a feeling already, and and it happens a lot in in sports, just in general, professional sports, to uh, or just any walk of life that it's not your own guy, like we see with. The, the swirling rumors with Luke Walton and Magic Johnson with the Lakers right now that there's always this possibility that they're going to let him go because he was not hired by Magic. Um, for you, you could did you already see the writing on the wall or like how did the, how did you feel when that uh, that process that transaction of, of the team being bought happened? Well, both Ed Schmidt, who was uh, Charlie's right hand man, and I begged beg uh, Charlie not to sell the team because we could see the growth in the team and the growth in franchise values. And, you know, it was something that Charlie decided he wanted to do, but he certainly, uh, if he'd have hung out on the team a couple more years, would have made, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars more. Um, you know, so you could argue about whether it was the right thing to do or not at the time. Um, he didn't maximize the, the asset value, um, but he did have other financial challenges going on in his life at the time. Um, you know, when, when Les bought the club, um, he and I are very different people. Um, he wanted to blow up every deal that was there, no matter whether they were in writing or not. And, you know, my father and I are the kind of people that operate on a handshake. And we had been operating in that city for, you know, 30 plus years um, on a handshake with people. And, and, you know, Les wanted to breach every written contract we had. So, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to get along. Um, and it's certainly his prerogative to have um, whoever he wants to run the franchise. Um he didn't like it that we drafted Sam Cassell, um, although it was certainly the right pick. Um, guy had a great career. He helped us win the championship. Um, and the the um, the Mario Ellie deal, Les refused to uh, approve for weeks and weeks and weeks. And uh, Brad Greenberg, who was the GM in Portland at the time, and I had agreed on the deal. And you know, I got to give Brad a lot of credit because he was good to his word and uh, stuck with the deal um, when he could have certainly gone another direction. Um, and that's a rarity in, in a lot of businesses. So, you know, he, he deserves, I think, credit for that. Um, but we didn't get the deal done until um, Rudy literally had us threatened to quit. Um, it was such a one-sided deal and such a perfect deal. And it, we wouldn't have won the championship without it. Uh, you know, Mario is far, far, far better player than a second round. Anybody going to get in the second round? Um, you know, so from our standpoint, it was a no-brainer. Um, but you know, Les thought he knew a lot about basketball, and uh, uh, so finally, finally, after Rudy sort of uh, threatened to quit unless we did it, he finally approved it. It got done. Oh wow! Um, so the team went went on to win two championships. Now, for you, you assembled pretty much all of that team from Sam Cassell, yeah. Mario Ali, to being there when Akeem was drafted. You have been with the organization for a long time. To all the other pieces, Robert Ory, Otis Thorpe being traded in the to the from the Kings to the Rockets in the in the mid to late eighties, and. Um, you know, Kenny Smith and Vernon Maxwell, you had a key part in a lot of those players, a lot of the key guys on the team who were playing. And even to the guys like Scott Brooks, Matt Bowler, you signed or traded for. Um, yep. So uh, for you at that time, are you rooting for the team when they're in the finals, playing the Knicks, when 
Uh, how does yeah. that? How does that? Do, do you find yourself still rooting for the team even during that process? Well, I either signed or or, or traded for everybody, everybody but Clement Johnson, everybody on the roster. So, uh, and all the coaches, and all the trainers, and all the equipment managers, and all the <laughs> <laughs> assistant coaches, and everybody else. So, yeah, it was a team of my creation. So yeah, I wanted to see him win it, and uh, yeah, I was there at Game Seven, and yeah, I got the first championship hat out of the box, and uh, uh, you know went to the after game celebration with the team, and uh, you know I I put that team together, so built that championship team, and so I was uh, happy for the team, happy for the community. Um, that we won it happy for the folks that had you know worked for so many years either on the staff or as coaches or uh, as owners and struggled to get it there and i thought it was great you know at the time you had some other teams that would win and there'd be riots um, in the streets and everything was peaceful in houston and uh and uh we had a great night and great parade after that and uh and so it was a great experience uh, personally and, and, and for the community. Yeah. Um, so that team, the, the culmination of them being able to, to win a championship, be that kind of team. When we talk about team building in sports and just sort of trying to build a championship team, build a winning culture for you, what, what do you think was the biggest key to building that team and sort of something that, that stood out to you about what, what made that team special? Well, I think we had people that understood their roles. Uh, you had, you know, a super superstar in, in Lajuan who was willing to do the, the right things uh, to help us win. Um, I think they were, for the most part, good people. And uh, it was a team of character. And... Uh, you know, without each one of the people contributing, uh, we wouldn't have won it. Um, you had to have a guy like Scotty Brooks. You had to have a guy like Sam Cassell. You had to have a guy um, like Mario Ali and Carl Herrera played well for us. You know, we got him from Europe. Um, so each one of those guys has to play a small role. Um, but an important role for you to win it. I mean, I remember playing Boston in the finals in 84 before that. And, you know, they got Bill Walton and he got one big rebound in overtime to beat us. And and it ultimately turned out to be the reason they won and we lost. And so uh, sometimes the guys that you don't necessarily expect, um, you know, he's a, he's a great player had a great career, but, you know, people have to step up and, and uh, hit the big shot or make sure they uh, cover their defensive assignment and uh, and get the win. And so, for I guess as like a final thing, I'll do like a sort of a speed round uh, looking into just sort of your favorites or things that, that happened throughout uh, your run with the Rockets. So who was the hardest player to trade that a player that you felt like really bad about trading or something that happened that made you feel, Oh, this is tough. Like I really don't want to move this guy. Hmm. Um, I don't think I have one, you know, I mean, I think the, the deals we did, we, we, we had to do and, I think people understand it's part of the business, and though it might not be fun, you you got to you got to do it. Um, what? Who was? Uh, I guess in your time of you know trade talks or, and talking with other GMs, other executives around the league, who was a an executive that you always felt like you you talked the most with about just trades or just any just anything? Honestly, any, it could be anything, but just a, uh, an executive that you felt like 
like you just talk to all the time about just wh whether it be personnel or or other things you know i didn't have one i i i would speak to different people for different purposes and um you know so I, I got along well with Jerry Krause. A lot of guys didn't. Um, I actually liked Jerry. Um, Pat Williams had known for 40 years. Um, McCloskey, I thought, was really a good operator, and I always enjoyed talking with him. Um, Bob Bass, you know, we were family friends. Scotty Layden and his dad, we were family friends. Um, so... Uh, you know, Jerry Reynolds who ran Sacramento, we talked all the time. I kept trying to get Ainge off of him. He never would give him to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I had a lot of respect for Checkets. I thought he did a great job uh, at both teams. Um, you know, we'd spend a lot of time. You know, Jerry West, you know, was a classy operator. He'd always try to fleece you, but, but you know, was a, was a classy operator. So, you know, there's a lot of guys uh, I get along with. Bob Woodson, you know. You got along with a lot of them in the league. And also, what was the hardest trade to make in terms of maybe long negotiation process? Hmm. Probably Otis Thorpe, uh, because it was in the middle of when the uh, collective bargaining was getting negotiated. And uh, um, we spent a good time actually flew up to Ohio, met with his agent, Phyllis Freed, and uh, Larry Fleischer was also working on deal on the deal with Phyllis, and Larry was at the same time negotiating for the union uh, with the collective bargaining agreement. And so um, <clears throat> once we got the deal put together, there was sort of a short little window where there was um, – uh, part of the collective bargaining agreement that hadn't been settled yet. And so we were able to slip through a very narrow uh, window, both, both in legal definition and in timing. And, uh, you know, Gary Bettman wasn't too happy about that, but we had to do what we had to do to make the franchise better. And, uh, but that took, it took months. Um, but we got it done and, uh, and always did a great job for us. Yeah, the it was a trade with the Kings, uh, Rodney McRae and Jim Peterson, going to Sacramento right. for uh, Otis Thorpe. Um, and what's an underrated trade that you made that you feel like maybe uh, maybe it's Scott Brooks? I mean, uh, trading him uh, Minnesota and Houston. But uh, what trade? What was the, was there a trade that stood out to you that maybe other people wouldn't focus on? They focus more on say, uh, like the Otis Thorpe one. Uh, is there an underrated trade in in your mind that you think about? Well, I mean, twenty five thousand bucks for Vernon Maxwell. <laughs> Scotty for, you know, Scotty for a second round pick. Minnesota had some difficulty with their cap, um, so we were able to give up a second and get Scotty and played a lot, a lot of minutes. And you know, Mario Ellie for a second. Um, those are all pretty tough to beat in terms of what you give up in, in value. Um, but in those situations, you know, I knew where people were on the cap. I knew where they were financially. I knew what they needed. And so, you know, I could give them what they needed and we got what we needed. And final question for people who don't know anything about Akeem on a day-to-day -day basis, what was it, what was Akeem Elijahana like? Well, he's a great competitor. He's very, very competitive. Um, you know, from a business standpoint, he was very difficult to deal with. Um, but certainly, you know, he had a great sense of humor. And, um, he could be a lot of fun. Uh, but he was a load to handle uh, on a daily business basis. And it really wasn't until he, uh, he recognized that he had to make the guys around him better that uh, he finally got to the point of uh, being able to win a championship. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak sure. with me for the NBA Trades Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time. Yep. Happy to do it. Enjoyed it. Take care, Rafael. All right. Take care. 
This has been another edition of the NBA Trades Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, of course, and on Stitcher or on YouTube and on Google Play. So check it out and follow me on Twitter, NBA underscore trades, like the page on Facebook, and thank you. Peace.